This is Laura Deirdre with the Becker's Cardiology and Heart Surgery Podcast. I'm thrilled today to be joined by Dr. Nancy Schweitzer, Director of the University of Arizona Sarver Heart Center and Chief of Cardiology at the University of Arizona Health Sciences. Dr. Schweitzer, it's a pleasure to have you on the podcast today. Thank you so much, Laura. It's a pleasure to be here. Before we dive into the questions, can you tell us a little bit more about yourself and your background? Yes, absolutely. So I'm an academic physician scientist. I I'm actually an MD-PhD. I'm a clinically an advanced heart failure and transplant cardiologist with an active clinical practice, but I'm also a physician scientist having trained um, for my PhD in a very basic science lab, but um, may, having made the transition during my career to uh, clinical research, and, and now my research pro- predominantly involves clinical trials research in cardiology and heart failure. In addition, I'm editor-in-chief of the cardiology journal Circulation Heart Failure, which is an American Heart Association journal. And my work running the Sarver Heart Center really involves uh, bringing together people involved in cardiovascular science and cardiovascular care across the University of Arizona campuses and um, trying to build collaborations and advance science in cardiovascular medicine. Fantastic. And, you know, it just must be uh, a huge responsibility to bring together so many different types of professionals and, and specialists uh, to, to come in and collaborate on the same types of projects. Is that something that, you know, what kind of skills, I guess, are really needed to do that effectively? Well, it's interesting. I've found that I'm actually very passionate about this because I feel um, over maybe the last 50 years in academic settings and science in particular, we've gotten quite siloed because building a big lab and getting lots of grants is, has been necessary for promotion and success academically. But really what we need in 2021 are scientists who work across boundaries and who collaborate with others even you know, with extremely different expertise. It's where the exciting innovation and advances come from, I believe. So. I've really enjoyed this part of my job, partly because I have a fairly broad scientific background. I can talk to basic scientists and understand what they are working on and then find clinical scientists for them to collaborate with or put people together across disciplines who share an interest in perhaps something like inflammation or um, you know, cultural barriers to medical care or the economics of care. Um, you know, and bringing people with very different disciplinary expertise together is really exciting, I think, and where we're going to make differences for the future. That sounds amazing. And it really, you know, it's such an interesting role to be able to do that and make a difference. Now, what are the top three biggest issues that you're seeing in academic cardiology today? Well, I think, you know, uh, the biggest issue that we face is that be- being a clinical cardiologist and seeing lots of patients and particularly doing lots of procedures in our current largely fee-for-service environment is a very lucrative uh, profession. And pursuit of science is not a generally very lucrative profession. And so, you know, I think the, um, the economic drivers for those of us who've trained in cardiology to become clinicians and practice are very strong. And so I think the pool of physician scientists and cardiovascular sciences in particular is shrinking because of these economic pressures. And as you know, you know, people graduate from medical school with lots of debt and 
um, even if you're very passionate about science, it may not be economically feasible for you to have the life you want to live and um, with the salary of a, a primarily a scientist as opposed to the salary of a cardiologist. So that's a real problem, I think, this shrinking pool of physician scientists and, um, you know, bringing more people into scholarly work in cardiovascular medicine and how we can do that and still be financially and economically viable. So that's a big problem, I think, in academic settings. How do we compensate people for really important work? Um, you know, and I, we probably don't want to get into it, but historically, th this is a pendulum. You know, I remember when I was training, the research enterprise was funding the clinical enterprise, and now the clinical enterprise funds the research enterprise, and not very well. Everything, everybody's economic pot has shrunk, or fiscal pot has shrunk. And COVID's, you know, been really hard on our healthcare provider institutions. Um, everybody's having trouble making ends meet right now, and so the pressures to produce clinically are going up and up and up. I see this for my faculty, even if they want to pursue scholarly activity. Um, it's just really hard to do it in a viable way. And then I think, you know, it's sort of hand in hand with that is um, uh, that the healthcare enterprise is being increasingly driven by corporate entities who either have less appreciation for or just, um, you know, the academic enterprise doesn't fit into their bottom line as well. And, and I'm, I'm finding that often these healthcare, corporate healthcare entities don't understand kind of what a healthy, mature academic faculty look like. And what I mean by that is you may have senior um, academicians who are very important for your enterprise, especially in a university setting. They're internationally known. They can give lectures all over the world. They can raise the stature and brand identity of your institution. They may work less clinically. They may want a lower salary. They're often happier with a lower salary and not having to meet um, productivity benchmarks, but just uh, do enough clinical work to cover their salary and pursue their academic interests. Um, in a way that they feel is fulfilling. Um, but, but what I'm finding increasingly as a chief of cardiology is my, my corporate healthcare entity wants all my faculty to be bit hitting productivity benchmarks. And for some of my senior, very academic faculty, I don't think productivity benchmarks are as important as them being okay with a lower salary and doing the work they do all over the world that's incredibly important for our institution. So I think balancing those two competing interests is going to be really important. And I think when, you know, as increasingly in academic centers, we have a corporate healthcare entity and a university entity, and they're working together. And I think these entities have to learn to understand one another better um, and, and really work collaboratively to make sure that you can develop a mature academic faculty who are happy and engaged in your healthcare enterprise, but also that the healthcare enterprise is invested in the academic enterprise. 
Absolutely. That's such a fascinating thing to think about. And I'm sure a challenge that a lot of academic institutions are trying to troubleshoot today. Um, You know, when you look over the next 18 months or so, how do you see things evolving, both in terms of the heart care and then the research that you're engaged in? Um, What types of innovations and exciting things are are ahead? Well, you know, I think... um, for the next 18 months and, and far beyond that, cardiovascular medicine is going to explode. The, um, you know, we are increasing the population over 65 at unprecedented rates for the next 15 or 20 years. And, um, and that group of people, you know, we've gotten very good at preventing a lot of other diseases that used to take people's lives, and they live to develop cardiovascular disease. And as you know, and every all of the listeners of this podcast know, I'm sure, cardiovascular disease is the number one killer of men and women worldwide, and particularly in the United States. And so uh, I just think we don't have the cardiologists to handle the volume, particularly, you know, common diseases, coronary artery disease, atrial fibrillation, heart failure is um, increasing. All of the recent data suggests that we have a really profound increase in heart failure occurring because we're very successful at treating a lot of cardiovascular disease. And if you live long enough, you start to develop heart failure. And then peripheral vascular disease and other valvular heart disease, other cardiovascular diseases, all are increasing in incidence because people are successfully aging, which is great. But we need providers to take care of all these patients. We need to train our primary care workforce better in managing some of these conditions and referring appropriately into cardiology. And I think there's just going to be a huge workforce problem. Um, It's also very exciting that we've never had a better time scientifically. So much exciting work is happening, so many innovations, um, advances in care of patients. But all, all of the new technology and new innovation, new drugs are expensive. And just the financial issues of caring for this aging population with significant disease, with great technologies that impact lives but cost money. It's a huge challenge, I think. Um, I think all, all the cardiologists I know are very excited to be providing care in this time because it's exciting. We can do a lot of good. But, the, you know, the financial challenges and pressures are, are not small. Got it. And, you know, when you're looking at kind of that making that balance between being able to provide care and doing the research and, and developing new innovations, and then on the other side of it, understanding the cost pressures and the financial challenges that healthcare institutions are undergoing, you know, how do you see that balance playing out in the next few years? Well, it's, you know, it's hard to know. I think that, that what all physicians will tell you is that what we're doing right now is not working. <laughs> you know, there's a lot of irrationality in our healthcare system. I was just attending in the ICU last week in, or in the inpatient setting, and we had a patient admitted for initiation of IV antibiotics for um, a chronic uh, driveline infection of his ventricular assist device, which is something advanced heart failure doctors deal with. But the patient was in the hospital for five days waiting for his health care insurance to approve administration of outpatient antibiotics. And five days in the hospital is way more expensive than outpatient antibiotics. So that's just not financially rational. And similarly, you know, speaking as a heart failure cardiologist, we have some really effective new drugs that are expensive for patients. 
and insurance companies routinely deny them, but they pay for these patients to get hospitalized for decompensated heart failure, which would be reduced by these drugs. And patients won't pay for the drugs because they're $500 a month, you know, tens of thousands of dollars a year out of pocket, and patients won't do that. So, you know, I think we currently have an irrational system and financially, and we need to make it rational. And there are attempts to do that with, um, you know, capitated models and um, shared uh, financial responsibility models. But the problem is, again, that patients make decisions based on out-of-pocket costs, despite very good data suggesting if we just covered guidelines-based medications, our outcomes in healthcare in the United States would vastly improve. So, you know, I think we have to figure this out. And it's hard because there are so many stakeholders who are financially incentivized to keep things the way they are, including cardiologists. We make, you know, a good living doing our procedures. So I think um, balancing the good of the entire populace of the United States with everybody's pocketbook is a very, very challenging field. Um, I don't think we have the right system now. I don't know that I'm going to solve it, though, for you. <laughs> it is one of those hard problems that, that's out exactly, there. Exactly. Right. If it were easy, it would have been fixed by now, yes. Exactly, exactly. So, well, absolutely. And I think that's such an interesting, you know, thing to think through and think about. Um, we've talked about a lot of different things today. And I'm wondering, you know, is there anything else that you're excited about right now? And what makes you nervous? Well, you know, what I'm excited about, certainly in the environment in which I exist and practice is um, integrating uh, cardiovascular research and cardiovascular care. So I, I have worked as a clinical trialist really hard to build up our infrastructure to bring the latest and most promising therapies to our patients here at the University of Arizona so that when you see a cardiologist in our clinic, increasingly you are eligible for participation in research studies to help us understand if, you know, the next thing coming down the pike is going to be the trans next transformational therapy in cardiology. And I love, you know, um, allowing myself and my faculty to bring these therapies to our patients and introduce them uh, in tandem with our excellence in clinical care. So I'm, I'm very excited about that. I think there's a lot of really good and innovative potential therapies in cardiovascular medicine and Having centers, I think university centers are uniquely positioned often to bring those therapies to our patients, and it's, you know, it's what I love about academic medicine. I think, you know, what makes me nervous is um, uh, the thing that makes me most nervous is the, the way that healthcare has evolved over the last 10 years is to make us as lean as possible, and what I see in my institution is doctors doing things that doctors shouldn't be spending their time doing because we, we just don't have support staff. And COVID has certainly made this worse. A lot of people in healthcare are burnt out and leaving healthcare. And, um, and it's just hard, you know, there's a nationwide shortage of medical assistants who just keep the business of outpatient medicine going. So I think the workforce issues really make me nervous. And then um, I think the most exciting thing 
for me in the last year has been seeing my colleagues here and across the country rise to the challenge of COVID. You know, I think we trained to take care of people in their absolutely worst moments and watching my colleagues rise to that challenge and take care of people through a really tough pandemic year um, really excites me about the fact that our passion and the heart of the profession is strong. That's fantastic. And, you know, like you said, it, it's been such a um, wild year this past year and to have the healthcare providers, the physicians and nurses and any other support staff being so generous with their time and abilities in, in caring for patients is um, so, so important. Now, as we wrap up our conversation, can you share three pieces of advice for emerging physician leaders today? I'd love to. Um, so, you know, I think, I think one piece of advice, and this is, you know, telling about how I've been spending some of my time recently, but I'm a female cardiologist, which is a very um, underrepresented demographic. <laughs> Cardiology is not, has, has been um, really quite poor at improving diversity in our workforce. And I have spent a lot of time in the last year um, educating myself about the issues around diversity and coming to realize that, you know, understanding diversity is really understanding not, not diversity from where you sit, but putting yourself into the lived experience of others and trying to understand that. I think this started for me with the New York Times 1619 project and really understanding the implications of systemic racism and how they're built into our society. And then starting to think about how I can understand the lived experience of my underrepresented faculty and, and start to change the culture around that. And I think if you're an emerging leader, you have to pay attention, particularly in cardiovascular uh, disciplines, to the issues of um, discrimination and disparities in our profession. Uh, the second piece of advice um, I would say is uh, that you need to learn how, as a leader, to align your agenda with the agenda of those who are important to collaborate with. I see a lot of young leaders trying to push something through that is not at least crafted in a way that engages the people their partners that they need to work with. And you have to find the win-wins to move any agenda forward. And so you may not be able to move your agenda forward as you initially envision it, but you can find those win-wins and make progress on your agenda. And that's re also really important. Um, you know, I think that networking and sponsorship and mentorship have been talked about a lot, um, but I think uh, you need to build your network as a leader. And as you move into leadership, your network changes. If you become the leader, then the subordinates um, or direct reports who previously were your peers and your friends are less friendly because now you have a power relationship with them and it changes your network. And so it's important as you ascend in a leadership track to mature your network in concert with your career and find your new peer mentors and um, sponsors. 
at each stage of your career. And it took me a little time to learn that. I went back to my old network, and it didn't work the same way. And you need a new network at each stage of your career. Dr. Schweitzer, thank you so much for joining us on the podcast today. This has been a really fascinating discussion, and I look forward to connecting with you again soon. Thanks, Laura. It's been really fun.